Good morning. We have uh, two scripture readings this morning. We'll be reading from Philippians, out of Ruth, Ruth, Ruth chapter 4 being the main text. I'd like to read first from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This has, uh, uh, is tied in with uh, Ruth chapter 4 uh, in some ways, as we'll see. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, let's hear God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not recount equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> We're not going to be focusing particularly on the incarnation today, but of course it's, it's, uh, Christmas is coming right up. I just wanted to note in passing that, the, that this passage in Philippians expresses wonderfully the, the wonder of the Incarnation. That he emptied himself, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of man. Our redemption came about because, because of the Incarnation, and we give thanks for that. <clears throat> Let's now look at Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's hear God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back, from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know that there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. Confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this is the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day <clears throat> that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Here ends the reading of God's word. Um, I want to, to note just, uh, I, I, convey tra- I convey translations of several Hebrew phrases in today's passage. I want to be clear that I don't have training in Hebrew myself, but I consulted lexicons and interlinear translations in each case, and have confirmed the meaning of the phrases with someone who knows the language well. Just to make that disclaimer. Let's, let's pray for God's word. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding of your word, apply it to our hearts, give us joy in you. We pray in your name. Amen. The book of Ruth is unique among the historical books of the Old Testament. We've known this, this before. Unique in a number of ways. It's by far the shortest of the historical books, 24 chapters. And unlike all the others, there are only a handful of people in it. Only eight named people. And all of them very ordinary folks. No prominent leaders like kings, prophets, priests. Most of the story takes place in a small town, Bethlehem. We don't know exactly when, but from chapter 1, verse 1, we know that it was sometime during the time period of the judges. That's approximately 1350 to 1000 B.C. We've been looking at the book of Ruth on occasional Lord's Days when Pastor Bailey has been unavailable. As we've moved through the story, we've seen how vulnerable Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth are. They're two women with no male relatives to provide for them in the time of the judges and protect them. Last time we looked at chapter 3, there we saw Ruth, directed by Naomi, take a daring risk by making a nighttime visit to the threshing floor where Boaz was sleeping and asking her to redeem, her, to redeem him to redeem her by marrying her. In doing this, Ruth was legitimately invoking a provision was called the law of redemption in Deuteronomy 25. Tom just read it a few minutes ago. Boaz is surprised by Ruth's visit but agrees to her request, blessing her in the name of Yahweh and confirming his intention by a solemn vow. He notes, however, that there's a possible snag because there is a relative of Naomi's, a potential redeemer, who is a closer relative than he and that that relative will have what we would call the right of first refusal. So whether this man will redeem Ruth is unknown, and she returns to her mother-in-law in a state of some uncertainty. Naomi, however, expresses confidence that Boaz will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And here this section of the story ends. What will the day bring? You may wonder. How will the matter be settled? 
Along with Ruth and Naomi, we, we await the outcome, sitting, as it were, on the edge of our seats. The story of Ruth comes to its climax in the verses that we just read. The sermon today will have three parts. First, in verses 1 through 10, we'll look at the public proceeding at the gate of Bethlehem, where Boaz interacts with a closer relative to settle this matter. That'll be the first part of the sermon. Boaz acts. Then we'll consider the response of the people of Bethlehem, the city elders and the others at the gate, in verses 11 and 12. That'll be the second part of the sermon. Bethlehem blesses. Bethlehem blesses. Finally, we'll take the story forward into the New Testament and see its significance. And there we'll see how Jesus receives. How Jesus receives. Boaz acts. Bethlehem blesses. Jesus receives. So, first of all, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4, Boaz acts. As Naomi has predicted, Boaz wastes no time. In the morning, he goes to the entranceway to the city, the gate, where legal transactions were handled, sits down and waits for the closer relative to come by. When the man comes, Boaz hails him. Come here, friend, sit down. Now, Boaz surely knew him. I must have called him by his name. But the narrator doesn't give it. You don't need to know that. And Boaz then asks ten city elders to be witnesses and launches out. Now at this point, Boaz conveys some information that has not previously been mentioned, but which we do need to know. We learn now from verse 3 that Naomi also needs redemption, but in a different way. Naomi needs a relative, a kinsman, to buy from her, that is to redeem the piece of land that belonged to her husband Elimelech. Here Boaz invokes another part of the law of redemption that's set forth in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Read that again. If one of your brethren becomes poor, and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Now, Naomi's situation is not exactly what's described in Leviticus. Her situation is serious, but not quite as grave as that situation, because it appears that she hasn't yet had to sell the property outside the family. That becomes clear upon reading the account carefully. If you, if you take verses 3, 5, and 9 together. They indicate that Naomi is the one who is actually selling the property. It says that. Redeemer is not buying the land from someone to whom Naomi previously sold it. He's buying it from her. We're not told why she's selling it, but surely because she needs the money to live. So, if she sells the property to a kinsman, it will be a preemptive sale done to keep her, a widow with no source of income, from having to sell family property outside the family when she runs out of money, which she will at some point. That said, the Leviticus passage is broadly applicable to Naomi's situation, even though her situation is not quite as dire. If the kinsman buys the property from her, Naomi will get money to live on, and the property will stay within the broader family. We don't know how much land was involved, but from verse 9 we see that it was all of the family property. 
all that belong to Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. So this is a pretty big deal. Naomi is selling all, all, all of the family land. So Boaz tells the close relative about Naomi needing to sell the land, reminds him that he is the closest redeemer, and then says to the man, somewhat pointedly, we suspect, and I come after you. And perhaps there was a gleam in his eye as he said it. We don't know. Anyway, Boaz makes no mention of Ruth at this time. The Tosha relative says then he will redeem the property. Boaz then says that when he buys the property, he will also acquire, that is the word, acquire Ruth, the widow of Malon, as his wife. In order, says Boaz, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. The closer relative then demurs, saying that if he marries Ruth, it will impair his own inheritance. Perhaps the man has noticed the gleam in Boaz's eye. We don't know. Anyway, he then says to Boaz, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself. And to make it official, he takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. This is the sign that confirms the transfer of his right to redeem. The closer relative doesn't say why marrying Ruth would impair his inheritance. There's there's been a lot of speculation by biblical commentators over the years about what this man meant, but we're just not told. Because we don't know what this unnamed man meant, we should be careful not to charge him with bad motives. There's no hint of that in the text. The man simply says that he can't redeem Ruth without risking his own inheritance. We know that Boaz has already told him explicitly that he, Boaz, is next in line which has surely communicated his willingness to marry Ruth. So this man and everyone else who witnesses at the gate, everyone knows that he won't be leaving Ruth in the lurch. This poor man has often been criticized sharply, but I think this has occurred in large part because people have had in mind the situation described in Deuteronomy 25, which we read earlier, in which a kinsman redeemer selfishly refuses a widow's plea to act. The kinsman in that situation is certainly blameworthy. We can't say that the unnamed kinsman in Ruth should be blamed when there was a next in line who was willing, able, and apparently eager to act. Boaz then states before the ten elders and everyone present that he has now bought all the property that belongs to Elimelech and his sons and that he has acquired Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, as his wife. He calls the elders and everyone present as witnesses and the witnesses confirm that the legal transaction has occurred. Now, a couple of reflections about this key scene. First, about the reason for this whole procedure. Boaz says to the unnamed relative that Ruth, the wife of the dead, needs to be redeemed, quote, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Now, this may seem strange to us, but in Old Testament times, it was very important that one's name be carried on through the generations, one's name. We need to make clear that, this, that, uh, that that was actually considered to be the main reason for a kinsman to marry the widow of the deceased Israelite. Care of the widow was important, but perpetuating her dead, dead husband's name was the stated reason for the law of Deuteronomy. We see this in particular when the deal is concluded in verse 10, where Boaz himself states this at length. 
He says, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. Boaz certainly stood to gain from redeeming Naomi's lamp and marrying Ruth. But the chief reason for doing this, as stated here, was to perpetuate the name of Malon. Now, there's a marvelous irony here, as we'll see. We'll pick that up again shortly. Second, uh, about this scene, about Boaz himself, this is the critical scene of the book. And here especially, Boaz shines. Boaz was actually, was actually not obliged to address the needs of Naomi and Ruth. He was a second-in-line kinsman who had neither obligation nor authority to act unless the first-in-line kinsman refused. But Boaz, knowing the great needs of Naomi and Ruth and caring about them, willingly initiated this whole process. He addressed the matters quickly, handled them skillfully, and carried them through to a successful completion. We've noted previously that Boaz was first introduced to us specifically by the narrator in chapter 2, verse 1, as a worthy man, the word is Kail, a man who displays true excellence in multiple ways. Here at the gate, we see his Kail, his noble character, his godly vigor, his wealth used with kindness, his ability to accomplish what he sets out to do, his standing and his influence in the community. Boaz is in every way a man of excellence, a worthy kinsman redeemer. Boaz shines. We come now to the response of the witnesses and others at the gate in verses 11 and 12, and we'll listen with interest as Bethlehem blesses. And this is the point at which the handout, the insert in the bulletin uh, uh, may be of use to you. As it's a little complex. I'll, I'll read that blessing again, verses 11 and 12. This is what the witnesses at the gate said. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez. And Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord would give you by this young woman. That's a fairly complicated blessing. There's stuff in it that's a little unclear. So let's see if we can get this clear, get clear what they're saying. This is a spontaneous blessing. Actually, several blessings from happy people. Spontaneous, but nevertheless prophetic. We'll look briefly at what these people are actually saying. We should note first that these blessings are heaped on Boaz because of what he has done, not just because he's a respected man of the community. Blessing and honor are heaped upon him because of his work of redemption. And there's New Testament significance there, which we'll see shortly. So we're looking now at these blessings. In our society today, someone who's making a speech in public will often build his speech so that the most important thing that he wants to say is towards the end, or at the end. He builds as he goes towards the end. Preachers have historically tended to do that in our society. 
they found that it helped listeners to attend. In Bible times in the Middle East, it was sometimes like that, but more often it was not. In public discourse and even to some extent in conversation, people tended to communicate the most important things in the middle of what, what they wanted to say. It was partly just the way that people's minds worked. And that's how it is in this blessing. The more important things are actually in the middle. And along with having the main point in the middle, people in the Middle East in Bible times tended also to think in terms of parallels. So particularly in formal situations, people would arrange what they intended to communicate so that there were parallels between the first thing that they would say and the last thing. Between the second thing and the next to last thing. And so, on, so inward toward the middle. This way of structuring what you want to communicate is called chiasmus. And it's found throughout the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. And that's the way these particular blessings are conveyed. They're organized in parallel thoughts. And the most important blessings, the prophetic blessings, are not at the end, but towards the middle of what the people said. So please look with me at these blessings of the witnesses. They're printed in the handout. Uh, there's, if anybody wants, I think there's some more at the table at the back. What the people at the gate are saying here is somewhat complicated. Uh, but we'll try to understand it here. There are three pairs of blessings here. Designated A and A prime, B and B prime, C and C prime, with keywords highlighted. So the first line and last line, A and A prime. First line says, the Lord make the woman. And, and the last line says, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. And you think you can see there's similarity in theme. I think they're best understood as general statements. Pray God's blessing for Boaz through Ruth, who is coming in, who is married. They're saying, in effect, may the Lord bless you, Boaz, through this woman. That's the first line and last line in parallel. Second one, then, is second line and the next to last line. designated B and B prime. These are a little longer and a little harder to understand. Uh, B, the second line is, the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. And then B prime, the next to last line is, may your house be like the house of Perez, and Tamar bore to Judah. Again, I think you can see similarity in content, the parallel between the two lines. They're both about the building of a house. They both cite examples from the history of Israel. Of course, they're not talking about a physical house, made of bricks and mortar, but a house in the sense of a large body of descendants with standing and influence. Line B cites Rachel and Leah as examples. These two women, wives of Jacob, were considered to be the mothers of the entire nation of Israel, key people who had built up the house of Jacob. Then line B prime cites the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This refers to a complicated and rather unpleasant story that's found in Genesis 38. But it's a story that is nevertheless recognized in Scripture as a somewhat messy kinsman-redeemer story. 
What happened in the story was not good, but God overruled it for good. And the child who was born, Perez, was a very vigorous person, the most significant of the sons of Judah, and he established a lasting house, the most influential house in the tribe of Judah, which was itself the most influential tribe. So that's why Tamer, Judah, and Perez are mentioned here in this blessing. Putting these two lines, B B and B prime together, the people at the gate are, uh, are in effect saying to Boaz, may your wife, Ruth, help, you, help build you a house strong, vigorous, and permanent, as did Rachel and Leah and Tamar in the past. These two lines together are more specific than the previous ones. Together they constitute a prayer for the building of a lasting house for Boaz. A prayer that turns out actually to be prophetic. Thirdly, now we come to the two central lines, designated C and C prime. C is, and may you act worthily in Ephrathah, C prime, and be renowned in Bethlehem. These are also pretty clearly in parallel. They're both blessings, expressing the people's desire for the best for Boaz himself as he dwells among them. Ephrathah is another name for Bethlehem. It's, it's identified with Bethlehem several places in the Bible. Most obvious one, Genesis 35. So these two blessings are saying similar things, but but they're worth drawing out also. Although they sound somewhat generic, I think they actually are quite wonderful. The first one, may you act worthily in Ephrathah. Literally, may you achieve Kail. Literally, may you achieve Kail. That's the word which you've heard a number of times describing Boaz in in these studies. In chapter 2, we saw the narrator introducing Boaz very intentionally in chapter 2, verse 1, as a man of Kail, a worthy man or a man of excellence. That's how we've seen him act all the way through, including here at the gate. Because Boaz has carried out so well his responsibility as the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, the elders and people at the gate pray in this blessing this man may achieve Kail, that he may prosper and excel even more, that he may increase in influence, power, and effectiveness among the people of Bethlehem. Perhaps the best way to put it is, may you, Boaz, excel more and more among us. And secondly then, the parallel blessing, C prime, may you be renowned in Bethlehem. Literally, may your name be called out in Bethlehem. May your name be called out in Bethlehem. This blessing is quite significant because, as we already mentioned, having a name and having it continue are very important at Old Testament times. And that's very much at the heart of the book of Ruth. Boaz himself stated twice that the reason that Ruth should be redeemed so that the name of her dead husband, Malon, would be perpetuated. Well, it says that in verse 5 and in verse 10. That, according to the law and according to what Boaz himself said, was the reason that Ruth needed to be redeemed. And names have been important all the way through this book. All the way back in chapter 1 and 2, the narrator made sure that readers understood that names were going to be important. There are only eight named individuals in the story, and apart from Obed, all of them, 
Obed, who was born during the story, every one of them is first introduced using a formula. The formula is the name of X was, or the name of Y was. Chapter 1, verse 2. The narrator introducing the family of the Limelech. The name of the man was Limelech, he said. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Then two verses later in chapter 1, verse 4, he introduced the wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. And finally, in chapter 2, verse 1, where Boaz was introduced, his name was Boaz. There's a cumulative effect from the repetition of the formula. It underscores the importance in the Old Testament and in the book of Ruth of people having names. Now, as we've said, there's irony in this blessing. According to the law of redemption, Deuteronomy 25, verse 6, the firstborn son of Boaz and Ruth should have been considered to be the son of Malon, so that Malon's name would be perpetuated. And peeking ahead, you can see that that sort of happened when Ruth's son Obed was born, and the neighbor woman said in verse 17, there is a son born to Naomi. Because formerly, according to the law of redemption, Obed would be the son, in quotes, of Malon, and thus Naomi's grandson. But just four verses later, in verse 21, in the genealogy of King David, Obed is specifically identified as the son of Boaz. And forever after, it's the name of Boaz that is remembered. Malon is never again mentioned in the Bible, nor is his father Elimelech, nor his brother Achilleo. It's Boaz who is listed as Obed's father in the genealogy of David, in the comprehensive genealogy of Israel in 1 Chronicles. Even more importantly, it's Boaz who is named as the direct ancestor of Jesus the Messiah in the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. This is the irony. Boaz redeemed Ruth so that the name of Malon would be perpetuated. But the elders and people at the gate expressed their desire for God's blessing to be placed on Boaz, saying to him in verse 11, May your name be called out in Bethlehem. May your name be called out in Bethlehem. God the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture, honored that desire, determining that the name that would be called out, remembered, perpetuated, would be the name of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. So the blessing of the elders and the people at the gate was honored by God. It took effect. Boaz indeed became renowned in Bethlehem. These were not just warm wishes from happy people. They were actually God's sovereign benediction upon Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, who had carried out the very necessary task of redemption. And we'll see as we go forward into the New Testament that these blessings had even greater significance and the unfolding of God's great plan of redemption to redeem sinners from all the earth and in all the ages. So this leads us into the last part of the sermon in which we look at the New Testament significance of the blessing upon Boaz. Boaz has acted. Bethlehem is blessed. And we see now what Jesus receives. What Jesus receives. When we looked at chapter 3, we noted that the work of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, prefigured the work of the great redeemer, 
is also our kinsman, Jesus Christ. Of course, Boaz's work of redemption didn't involve anything like the suffering Jesus underwent for us. Boaz married a lovely wife and acquired property. But still he prefigured, prefigured Christ's redemption because at some cost to himself, he was willing and able to deliver Ruth and Naomi from poverty and their family from oblivion. Today we've seen blessings and honor heaped upon Boaz specifically because he took on the redemption of Ruth and Naomi and carried it through to a successful conclusion. He was blessed because he redeemed them. The blessings and honor given to Boaz by the people at the gate point forward to the glory and honor that Jesus received because he redeemed sinners from eternal destruction. The author of the book of Hebrews, for instance, draws our attention to the glory that Jesus received because of his work of redeeming people. He said this in Hebrews 2, verse 9, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Hebrews 2, verse 9. The blessings at the gate pronounced upon Boaz have been fulfilled in the New Testament in glory being given to Jesus in at least two prominent ways. First, in the house that God has built for him. God did build a lasting house for Boaz. His name is prominent in all the genealogies going forward in the Bible. And God has built and continues to build a house for Boaz's greater son, Jesus. A much greater house. That house is the church where Jesus dwells. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us this in chapter 3, verse 6. Tom read this earlier. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we that is believers are, are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We that is believers are his house, it says. The church is Jesus' house. That's a huge subject. We make a note of it. It's got many implications, but we aren't able to look at it further today. We just make note of it as something to pay attention to going forward. We hurry on instead to look at another of the blessings given to Boaz and how it particularly points to Jesus. That blessing is in verse 11, may you be renowned in Bethlehem. Literally, may your name be called out in Bethlehem. Last time when we looked at Ruth chapter 3, we took note of the Apostle Paul's description of Jesus' work of redemption in Philippians chapter 2. We saw in that passage how Jesus fulfilled the three requirements of the law for a kinsman redeemer, thereby redeeming his people and saving them from eternal damnation. And Paul has yet more to say in the next few verses of that passage. I encourage you to look at it now. It's Philippians 2 at verse 5, it's on page 1152 of the uh, Pew Bibles, if you're, if you're using those. We read it earlier, um, I'll read the second half of it now, starting at verse 8. But there's a pivot point between verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8, being found in human form, this is Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death 
even death on a cross. And notice the pivot. The next word in verse 9. Therefore. Therefore. God has highly exalted him. And bestowed him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Therefore, says Paul, therefore, because Jesus willingly went to the cross and made atonement for sinners, God the Father exalted him. And he didn't just exalt him a little. God bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, the name so great that every being in the universe is called upon to fall down and worship. Every created being is called to worship this Jesus, now exalted, sitting at the right hand of God. This Jesus who possesses the name that is above every name. There's another passage of scripture that I think describes well the work of Jesus, the kinsman redeemer, and also the glory, the name that he has been given, for the two go together. Psalm 72 which is one of the most explicitly messianic psalms. I'd like to read some verses from that psalm, verses about Jesus, written 1,000 years before he was born. Start at verse 12. Here's Jesus, the great kinsman redeemer. He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak, and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Shiva be given to him. Verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Well, what does all this mean for us today? Well, many things, surely. It opens up all kinds of directions, things that scriptures teach but I want to focus on just one thing in relation to Jesus Christ which I think is most important that is that we worship him for two reasons one because our redemption is complete our kinsman Jesus has accomplished it glory be to him and secondly as a result of that redemptive work God the Father has given him that name that is above every name. How could we not worship him? Glory be to his name. Brothers and sisters, let's now bow together before our glorious Redeemer. Living God, triune, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we cast ourselves at your feet in worship and adoration. We praise you, God the Father, for sending your only begotten Son to redeem us from our sins. And we praise you that when he, when he accomplished that redemption, you highly exalted him and bestowed on him utmost honor and glory. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, for becoming a man, our kinsman, so that you might redeem us from our sins. We bow before you because you have accomplished that great work of redemption, have been exalted by your Father, given that name that is above every name. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for filling the Lord Jesus, enabling him to accomplish that great work, for inspiring the scriptures which tells us of our Redeemer and his work, and for applying his work of redemption to us, giving us new hearts, steadfast in our faith, and the bright hope of eternal life. Gracious God, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for loving us in Christ. We pray in his great name. Amen.